0: I'm Steve Backshaw and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show.
1: Hey guys, Adrian here. Welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. I'm here of course with Steve. G'day guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Dr James Ward from the University of South Australia. And James, you've been doing some talks today where I should, I should explain we're at the World Environment Fair and you've been doing some talks which I've really enjoyed, super important talks about population.
0: Yeah, the great taboo topic. Yeah. No, no one likes to talk about population, but I do. Yeah,
1: <laughs> And you know, one of the first people I heard talk about it was um, David Attenborough. He right. sneak it into the end of some of his shows. And he,
0: he's one guy that can get away with it. Yeah, isn't it amazing? Who, who can and can't? But he's probably the most high-profile person uh, on the planet, I think, who's trying to raise, the, uh, you know, raise awareness of this thing. Because it, it underpins all of these environmental problems that we're seeing. So, yeah, it's great to see... See Attenborough getting, um, at least least, uh, publicising the issue a little bit.
1: It it, it certainly is. And people always challenge the idea and say, well, this continent's massive and here's a map and there's the dots where the people live and you've got your capital cities. But what those maps fail to recognise is the impact that we have on the complete environment with cattle, sheep, wheat, pollution, plastic... All, 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 these, all these issues combined, it's a bigger picture than just well, there's lots more space for people to stand.
0: Oh, look, I think we're, you know, we're several generations urbanised. So we, we start to uh, view the world ar- uh, around us as what we've experienced in our lives, which is predominantly an urban experience. And that's, you know, it might be a house, it might be an apartment a garage, a little bit of driveway, and they sort of think, well, that's my footprint. You know, I guess I've got a, my share of the office space or my share of the local shopping centre, but it's a very much an urban footprint, I think, is, is in people's sort of direct psyche. And But every time, you know, I'm sipping a cup of coffee here that's got some milk in it, that, that milk has a footprint out there. It's not grown in the city. It's somewhere else where they're growing dairy cattle. And if I have, have meat with my dinner tonight, then that meat was grown on some some ranch somewhere or some farm somewhere and whatever else I'm having with it, vegetables, grains, these all have a, a footprint. And if you look at how much land on this continent is taken up with agriculture, it's something like 60%. So you could look at that map and you could say, oh, look, there's hardly any people. They're just in these little little cities around the edge. Not so little, but, you know, a small number of cities around the edge. But the footprint of our agriculture is huge. It takes up, you know, nearly two-thirds of the, uh, of the continent. And, and
1: with people, I mean, surprisingly, we do live in cities very, very well for a primate. I mean, if you put a bunch of chimps together or a bunch of, you know, any other primate together, it would get pretty messy pretty quickly. So we, we are conditioning ourselves to standing queues and, and to drive bumper to bumper and things like that. So we're almost evolving to be this termite-type animal. Are we? Do you think we're going to evolve and get really good at it and that's our direction? Or do you think there's a lot of mental health issues associated with the way we live now that we're disjunct from nature.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think, I think nature deficit disorder um, is, is a real thing. It's being documented. And um, yes, we're good at adapting. I mean, we're arguably what, one of the most adaptable species around. Um, we've adapted very well to this sort of lifestyle. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're happy. And I think that um, studies are sort of are showing that this concrete jungle is not great for human happiness and well-being and our economic model is not great for what really counts. We have a GDP which goes up and that's uh, linked to population growth but if you look at the sorts of things that make the GDP go up, if people are going and spending lots and lots of money going to psychiatrists because they're unhappy that's really good for the GDP because that's all money that's turning over in the economy but yeah, I think if we, if we separate out the, um, the the things we're measuring and measure what really matters. We'll see that we've we've taken a wrong turn somewhere with this, you know, with this deeply uh, urbanised kind of approach. So,
1: but, yeah. and I think the GDP doesn't reflect the environmental cost at the back end.
0: No, that's right. Yeah, it's so there's a, a really good alternative to the GDP, which is the GPI, the Genuine Progress Indicator, and that does account for. It's, it's like keeping a proper balance sheet. I mean, GDP is is like going out to a um, A small business owner and saying, why don't you just tally up all of your costs and all of your profits in the same column? And let's not worry about pluses and minuses. Let's just add them all together. It makes no sense. No no one could run a business that way. You'd go out of business in the first week if you lasted that long. That's what GDP does. It takes anything which is good, anything that's bad. If it has a price, it gets added um, to uh, to the system. The GPI, the Genuine Progress Indicator, takes out things which are bad, like environmental costs. And it, it, it's like having a cost in a business. And so you've got things that are good and they go in the, in the plus column and things that are bad go in the minus column. It's a much, much better way of measuring our progress. And if you look back over a country like Australia with uh, GD, GPI as the measure, you find that we, uh, we peaked in 1974. And we've had all this GDP growth, all this population growth, 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 growth. Um, and... And yet it's all been for nothing. Our well-being, our, our actual sort of um, income minus our costs, if you like, hasn't been going up since the 1970s. Fantastic. So, yeah, wow. showing that kind of <clears throat> science
1: in your talks, H- have you been well-received? Have you come up with much backlash?
0: I haven't come up with much backlash, but I should, you know, the, the scientist in me sort of says I haven't had a representative sample. So, this... World Environment Fair was probably the closest I've had, because the the trouble is getting people in the door. If you're setting up a talk about population, you know, think about the other talks we've had here at the um, at this fair. You've had your talks. I imagine are um, standing room only because you've got amazing animals, and it's it's something people can really uh, really look at and think that's cool. I want to I want to work with animals when I grow up. If you're a, if you're talking to kids and whatever my you know my talk is a bit more doom and gloom it doesn't leave people with a sense of oh cool i can go and do something about that and so people have, have pretty much uh, evolved i suppose to not like going along to talks that make them feel bad i mean if if we put on a show at the fringe for example and sort of made it really really bleak i think we wouldn't get a lot of sales <laughs> right people like to go along to things that make them feel good whether it's going along to a a show that makes them laugh or whether it's going along to something which makes them think, oh, that's cool. I'm going to join up to that and I'm going to do something. Whereas talking about population and talking about the unsustainability, the entrenched unsustainability of our economic system, you know, you get a few people who are already converted coming along. And therefore, yes, my talks are well received, but they're being well received by this very small fraction of people who um, already care about it. So what we haven't been able to do is get hold of a bigger audience. I've always thought the best thing to do would be to be able to rock up at a footy club when they have a um, end of season dinner or something like that and talk to, yeah, you know, this, this would be an audience that I'd, um, you know, the, the local footy club up in the Adelaide Hills or something like that. Um, that would be an audience I've never tried before. I'd probably be beaten up in the car park <laughs> after. But yeah, it'd be worth trying. People that maybe have never even thought about the issue, right. right? And I don't want to, I don't want to alienate all of your, um, you know, all of your footy playing um, listeners. But I just sort of think that would be a different, probably a different, uh, by and large, a different demographic. Yeah, you're people. not speaking to the converted. You've got a group of people that yeah, are they might sensitive south that's right, yeah, the community. Yep, yeah. speaking to people who, uh, who might not have ever thought about the way that their job depends on population. But if you're a um, this is yeah, it could be a different group of people, but um, if you're a, a tradie, you know, if you're if you're a carpenter, you or a, a sparky or something like that, you might not realise that your job pretty much depends on a continually uh, sort of growing, continuously growing demand for housing, and that really, to unless people are, are getting lots and lots of divorces and splitting up and needing two houses per family and what have you, and that actually is a driver of housing uh, growth in this country, sadly, but. Um, yeah if if people might not have sat back and thought actually you know my my position I I think about this all the time because I'm a civil engineer um, and I mentioned that in in my talk just before my job actually and I teach people about civil engineering my job depends on this continuous demand for more infrastructure because more infrastructure means more engineers employed that means more people need to be trained as engineers and that keeps me in a job. So I think about that constantly because I think, well, if we actually make this transition that we need to make to a population that's not growing, to an economy that doesn't um, depend on GDP growth, then chances are they're not going to need as many engineers. For example, they're not going to need as many uh, electricians and plumbers and things like that. We'll need some because there'll be always be a turnover of, um, yep. of infrastructure and renewal of housing stock and things like that, but that kind of, you know, frontier um, expansionist populate or perish uh, mentality will, will disappear. So,
1: that's... and the, Sorry, cool. go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, that's something that seems to be drummed into us. I mean, I remember there's been so many policies. You know, have one child for mum, one child for dad, one child for the country. I, I still see politicians coming out now saying that we, we need to have you know, more children. and It seems to be the mainstream position even though the undercurrent is people a sick death of bumper to bumper standing in lines yet people understand that this is no way to let so many people that I, I meet maybe on bias but um, you know want to connect with nature and all the things we were talking about um, what are they doing that for their own hip pocket or if if our economists think the system relies on
0: growth do we need a different system I think absolutely we need a different system um, that doesn't re- require growth. I think that the the big um, well, I think there there are two there are two elements to this. The people who I'm um, just mentioned, whose daily bread and butter these are um, regular people. You have people in, in your listening audience who are in this situation. and I mentioned I am myself. My you know my paycheck depends on being part of this system, and that has to change. And that's really really difficult when you're um, you know, when you're paying off a mortgage, basically. So that's one element to it. But I don't think that's necessarily the hardest thing to change because I think we can, you can look at sustainable business models, especially small business models, family businesses that have been in operation for hundreds of years, you know, dating... Um, especially if you go to places that have... Um, have a sort of a longer settled history than, than Australia, but you have these examples of... I love, I love the example of the, the pub in England that's been a, a pub continuously for a 1,000 years in the same building. Wow. You know, that hasn't had to sustain 2% annual growth compounded. If it did, it would be bigger than the solar system by now. Um, so that there are examples of sustainable business models that everyday people can participate in and have a great living, set themselves up, have a you know, have a retirement, you know, leave something for their kids, whatever is, is the thing that we want to aspire to in life. So that side of it is fine. The people who are pushing it, the people who are really spruiking growth, the... You know the federal treasurers and, and state treasurers and things like that. The people who are saying we we need to have you know we need to have two percent population growth or something like that. Um, and Adelaide has a relatively low population growth, um, slightly lower than the national average, and that makes the news because oh my goodness we're going backwards. We're not going backwards. We're just not growing as fast as the rest of the um, the country. The people who are spruking that, the people who benefit from it are people who uh, who make the most money from converting farming land into housing. And of course if you convert farming land into housing the farming has to go somewhere, which basically means converting nature into farming somewhere else. So that's always worth looking at. It gets back to what we were saying before. But then you've also got uh, media. So people who are at the top of large media chains, they have a vested interest in population growth because it means selling more of their products. So and retailers, big retail chains, they, um, they seem to have uh, a vested... Now, what I don't understand, to be honest, is why you can have a pub that lasts a mil- uh, million years. Well, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? But <laughs> let's aspire to maybe um, millennial scale. So you can have a pub that lasts a thousand years and is still going and doesn't need to grow. I don't understand why a large chain, a large supermarket chain or... Uh, or hardware store chain or something like that, a large retail chain uh, needs to grow. I don't understand why that can't exist for a 1,000 years without growing. And it almost strikes me that once you reach a certain critical size, maybe it's, maybe it could be quantified, maybe it's 100 employees or 50 employees, maybe you could, you could work that out. You end up with people at the top who are so far removed from the shop floor and, or from the... The sort of the cutting edge of whatever is happening in the organisation, that their decision making is all based then on on just numbers in spreadsheets and there is a, a lack of contentment with those people who sit in offices and look at spreadsheets all day. There's a lack of contentment and they can only sort of satisfy that with this sort of incremental growth. That's, that's their sense of progress because if they are reporting to shareholders and, and things, so it's, it's, that, it's that abstraction. Whereas if you're a pub owner, and I know it's not the same pub owner for a thousand years, but if you're running a pub for pretty much your entire career, or running a small business, and, and that you inherited from uh, from a parent, or something like that, and you're handing it on to a, uh, someone in the next generation, whether it's your own child, or a niece or nephew, or something like that, there is a, a sense, you know, you're there at the coalface, you're there at the on the shop floor, and you understand it. And so if you if you ship the same number of toothbrushes or whatever it is that you're selling or pints of beer, um, then that's good. That's a good year. You know, you, your sales didn't go down. Uh, brilliant. And then you hope for a good year next year. So there's, there's a difference, I think. When you, when you have that abstraction and you have people who are uh, removed from what's really happening, then they get bored and look for incremental growth. And I think that then feeds into that that Other side of the problem,
1: I want, yeah, it's very <clears throat> interesting. I wonder if it's an, an element of fear like you see the guy that's run the hardware store, his grandfather started, but then he didn't grow, and then suddenly a Bunnings comes along, and you get this massive corporation that squeezes out the small guy. So we almost want to grow because we're terrified.
0: Yeah, I think, I think there's that. I think that, that's a really good. It- Analogy. Actually, where I live in in the hills, in the Adelaide Hills, there is exactly that. There's this little hardware store. It's hanging on by the by the, uh, the skin of its teeth, kind of thing. Where, um, are, you, where are you based? Nan, okay, near cool. Mount Barker, yeah, and yeah. and there is a great big Bunnings that's now been up there for um, maybe like about the last five years or so, and and they're hanging on. You know, this little um, this little hardware store has better prices than Bunnings. Obviously, it doesn't have the same product range perhaps but it probably has better quality uh, stuff and so sometimes you go in there and you you have to order things and you might have to wait a few days for them to get them in but they'll get them in at better prices and you know that you're getting quality so but there's this entire sort of sense of convenience and um, the ability to you know the longer opening hours and things I uh, so I don't know there's and the mass marketing and all that stuff, I think, so, so con- consumerism and, and having products available on demand and in, in large supply um, rather than thinking, oh, well, the local store doesn't have it. That's right. I won't do that this weekend or that can wait till next weekend. I've ordered the stuff.
2: So, so Bunnings are only profiteering on what we're asking them for. Really. Well, that's right. So it's us who need to change.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and like with, with other things, other sort of ethical shopping. Mm. So think about free-range eggs versus cage eggs. And we can say they shouldn't be allowed to grow cage eggs. Mm. Um, and I'm guessing that no one's going to uh, debate that here. No. But there is a market for it. There are all these people out there who buy them because, uh, for whatever reason, probably cost. Mm. And and that's the challenge. It's, I mean, I, I think it's both. I think you can go and, and say, look, if, if you make your money out of you know, the misery of... Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of animals, then you should probably take a long, hard look at what you're doing. But also, there is a bunch of people out there demanding that product. So we all need to kind of participate in this. Good point, actually, because if they didn't do it, somebody, somebody else would do it. Right.
1: Have, have you been severely challenged? I mean, because I, I know there are people out there that just think that the whole thing's silly and we should be able to have as many kids as we want and I've heard things like, I love children, don't you like children? And all these kinds of strange people get really offended.
0: Oh, look, it, you can't talk about population without treading on some, um, some eggshells. So, the... Um, because the two elements of population growth are natural increase, which is um, births minus deaths... Uh, that's that's the, about a third of Australia's population growth and about two-thirds is net overseas migration, which is the um, number of people permanently migrating to Australia minus people permanently leaving. People like Steve. People like Steve. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and so you can't even begin to unpack this conversation without either advocating for less births, more deaths, less people permanently moving to Australia, or more people permanently moving away from australia and pretty much that means that every possible um element there is is something which is offensive (laughs) to to your audience more deaths yeah (laughs) more deaths i mean that is one that we haven't tried as much as we could okay yeah we haven't really tried pulling on that lever because the other ones give us enough enough hard time but maybe that's the one uh the one that we really should be pushing and i mean i could have tried it out there the all the young people in the audience would have Really love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, It's good for the yeah. environment. Yeah, um, I'm surprised they weren't giving out condoms. Well, that's a good point. See so that because that. Um, I mean, there's there's a whole sort of happy that, that conjures up kind of happy times, yeah, that's doesn't right. it? Really, <laughs>
2: let's face it. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so, yeah, the um, the births thing is interesting. So the there is a our fertility rate in Australia is about 1.9 children per woman at the moment. And that means that um, we are below what's called long-term replacement level fertility, which is about 2.1. That's one for mum, one for dad, and one, 0.1 that won't reproduce. So that's, that's pretty much the, the standard fertility rate, that if you did that for many, many, many generations, you would have a stable population. So we're about 1.9. <clears throat> but a lot of people think that we have... Uh, if we didn't have migration, our population would be going backwards. It wouldn't, actually. If we, didn't have, uh, if, if we were to reduce our net migration to zero hypothetically, which means that for the 150,000 people who permanently leave, we would have 100, allow 150,000 to permanently migrate to Australia. That's what zero net migration would mean. It's, it's not a closed-border policy. But just hypothetically, imagine that we did that. Then our population would no longer be growing due to net migration... But it would still be growing due to natural increase, and the reason is even though we are below fertility um, below replacement level fertility, we have more births than deaths because we are still in the legacy of the baby boom that was 50 odd years ago and a bit bit more and um, so there are still more people of reproductive age having their 1.9 kids than there are people at the dominant dying age so the births minus deaths thing is still giving us um, a small amount of population growth in Australia, and that would continue for a little while longer, maybe another 20 years, 30 years, and then it would level off. And perhaps if we didn't have any change to those parameters, then it would start to gently decline. So, yeah.
1: Interesting. Now, I've been drawn towards this population issue because of my love for natural areas and my understanding of biodiversity and seeing it decrease. What are some of the factors that get other people interested?
0: I think that is the main one. I think that um, thinking about my involvement with Sustainable Population Australia, it is an environmental organisation and people have a a love for nature and that's what gets them involved. It is worth noting that in an Australian context where we have two-thirds of our population growth due to migration, you tend to end up Sharing the space with people who become opposed to migration for other reasons. And um, so last year, Dick Smith, for example, um, created a a whole lot of news because he launched his uh, sort of stop population growth um, campaign, and he very publicly um, went and and spoke with Pauline Hanson from One Nation. Now, that put a lot of people offside, quite understandably, because... um, there are a lot of people out there who don't agree with One Nation um, for an, a range of, uh, on a range of, of social and sort of cultural um, topics. So you do end up sharing the space to some extent with those people and I, I think it's important to, to recognise that um, the people I know uh, who are involved in conversations um, about population and stopping population growth nationally and globally are doing it both for environmental and humanitarian reasons, because it's not good for people to have a continuously growing population, even even though some of us have a, a, may currently have a job that depends directly or indirectly on a growing population. It's not good for us to be in a, a situation that's just getting more and more congested and less and less amenity.
1: I, d- I do understand that. I mean, it's funny because I, you know, just even just really selfishly, I mean, I'm into the environment for selfish reasons because i love it i feel better when i'm in it i'm passionate about it i have an appreciation for nature mm. and yet my business thrives because of all these people having all these children because children you know want to see animals so it's,
2: it's a real tricky one isn't it and, and when you look on like you, we we come across a lot of people that are always like oh you know you're like you're doing um paid photo opportunities and things on the stool that a lot of people will frown on and go why are you charging for that stuff you know why are you making? Why do you want to make so much money? But it in it's this because you're famous. It's I mean, it's like Comic Con, isn't it? But it's it's <laughs> how, yeah. That's right. It's because of how much these guys actually put back as well. You know, if they didn't make all this money, they, they wouldn't be able to plough it back in. So that as well. So it is a bit of a tricky one. It is a tricky yeah one. in that respect.
0: Yeah, I think we're we're part of a an interconnected system, and um, we can even those of us who are doing the most sort of altruistic things um you know the most wonderful things that are that are pro nature if you trace trace sort of who who is funding that who has donated the money for that or who uh, or what you had to do in your previous life to to set yourself up to do you know the the classic kind of magazine article so and so has you know uh, cashed in their their high-flying job in in inner city and has set up a wildlife sanctuary in the blue mountains and it's like well okay well so if if we unpack that and, and then you know, I think we're all, to some extent, dependent on this kind of conventional economy that we're, um, that we're sitting in. So, yeah, look, I, I think the humanitarian argument is also a good one, and um, there are so many benefits that would come from, say, Australia adopting a really strong foreign aid position that, um, that was able to proactively help developing countries um, develop gain access to family planning, um, family planning as in planning their families and how many kids to have and when, um, as well as uh, access to the contraceptives and, um, and services required to make those, uh, those plans sort of come to life, as well as targeted, you know, edu- better education, especially education for women and uh, greater economic opportunities for, for people. All of these things are really good humanitarian outcomes and they would have the uh, the impact of you know, rapidly reducing fertility, which is not saying we want less of, of less people in that country. It's basically saying that country will be so much better off for itself, and it will be able to enjoy its environment. That the people there will be able to enjoy their environment um, and and support themselves going forward indefinitely, if we help them reduce their fertility.
1: Do you think there's scope? And it's probably a bit of a squirrely one to do education for children in this area. I remember when I was a kid, I had teachers, I'm old enough to remember teachers at school smoking. They were reading us a book, we're sitting on the carpet, the teacher's smoking. I'm old enough to remember ashtrays in planes and, and, and trains. But anyway. Do you, but, then, but then there was a big campaign that went through the whole school system. I remember going home and saying, Mum, you can't smoke inside anymore. So I kicked my mum out. She started smoking outside. Um, do, you, do you think when you can when, when you, um, explain some of these issues and some of the ways we could be living and some of the ways that we could head if we continue to grow to kids who are probably, probably much wiser in some of these issues than some adults that are already conditioned?
0: Absolutely. And, and if there are any parents listening, if you haven't read Uno's Garden by Graham Base to your kids, I really, really uh, cannot recommend that book highly enough. It is, it is a brilliant um, story. It's beautifully illustrated, like all of Graham Base's books, like he, and if you don't know who, who he is, it's Alan Animalia, The Eleventh Hour, uh, some classic children's books, um, picture books. But he's also very, very good at um, putting sort of puzzles and number puzzles in his, um, uh, in his drawings. And this is a story about this little character, sort of a humanoid kind of uh, character, who arrives in the forest, and and loves it so much in the forest that he um, decides he's going to um, he's going to set up home there, and he sets up a little house. And every time you turn the page, the number of people gets bigger, and the number of buildings gets more. The number of buildings actually doubles each page. You know, from one, two, four, eight, all the way up to 512. I haven't actually. Counted them, but you know, in the in the lower numbers, he definitely drew the right number of houses, and I'm sure he drew all 512.
2: He would have put blocks of flats in. Yeah, he it did. Would have been yeah, hard to get into one. Was, yeah. <laughs> absolutely.
0: But biodiversity decreases, and so it, there are so many different number patterns that kids can play with this, and they can count the number of, and these are all they're, they're all kind of fantasy animals that are you know, beautifully drawn and have quirky names like moopaloops and things. Um, <laughs> But I just think that it's, it's such a beautiful example of, um, of someone who has thought long and hard, this is a difficult, difficult um, problem. Uh, and and it, it grows to the point where the civilization collapses and has to, has to be rebuilt in complete harmony with nature uh, by future generations. So it tells the entire story from sort of where we've been, to where we are now, to where those of us who care about it want the future to go. And it is just fantastic. So I think that is a... You know, I absolutely uh, recommend people go and have a look at that. And look at it e- either from the point of view of, you know, if you have kids uh, or you know people with kids, think about that um, directly, but look at it as a, an example of a narrative that can get people on side because it's somehow takes them through that entire journey and leaves them with hope and that's the critical thing and that's one of the reasons why we don't get many people coming along to talks like I gave today because it didn't leave people with a tremendous amount of hope of a vision for a, for a better world and I think if you're going to start engaging young kids you've got to give them hope and vision we cannot have you know six and seven eight year olds going around feeling like the planet's being wrecked even if that's if so, yeah, yeah. We here might feel like it's, it's a pretty bleak. We actually need to be careful. Yeah, do you, quite, do you think
2: right. uh, that, that like your message you're trying to put across now is possibly easier for you to put across now than it would have been 20 years ago um, because of everything that goes on now, like the, the message that gets out about the environment now a lot more? And do you think in that instance, like in the future as well, it's going to get easier and easier to, to get those messages out?
0: It's possible. And I, I'm, I mean, thinking back to the, what we were just saying about kids, that there definitely is a, a strong environmental education message that is happening, um, that is, is being put across in, uh, in schools now. So, um, yeah, I think that um, when we think perhaps 20 years ago, I'm not sure about the timeframes, but there is now a very widespread public acceptance about environmental issues like climate change. I think the big one right now is waste and um, especially plastics going into oceans. There is a really widespread public concern about things like that and so I, I think that we can, um, perhaps these, these sort of um, the public psyche was maybe less switched on to environmental issues 20 years ago. Um, I would say though that people have been beating the drum about population growth for 40, 50 years at least, and um, it hasn't really, hasn't really turned things around. But maybe, maybe that's because the, the conditions haven't been right and now people are really aware. Yeah, that's what I'd hope.
2: Yeah. yeah. It's so all, It's all becoming aligned and mm, making a bit more sense to people now. And...
0: Yeah. It is, it's, it is still interesting seeing how, how many people are really absolutely concerned about the environment, But you start to mention population and there suddenly a wall starts to go up so we're not quite there yet
1: Mm. I I do understand that because I as you know do these animal shows and everyone wants to hear about the animals and it's sad that it's endangered and Mm. my the reason I started doing this business 11 years ago was because of biodiversity so I thought I'd be able to talk about local native plants and nesting boxes and things and as soon as I start talking about changing the way you garden and using a local native plant, it's getting bored, boring now isn't it, even talking about it, so it's difficult, isn't it, it's, it's, it's a hard message and like you mm. say, you often you preach to the converted, you meet someone else that's on board with local native plants and you're like yay, you do a little dance but um, for the average punter it's just tell me about the animal yeah. make yep. me feel good and I'm going to go back home, yep. um, and yeah. yet people can be responsible for putting a species back into an area, we talk from the ground level up like mm. a plant or something like that and it's all a step in that direction so it's a, it's a tricky one. Maybe, maybe I should lend you a betong.
0: Yeah, if, if, if you've got one. Yeah, you
1: yeah. Take, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah I'll get Tam. I'll, she'll raise you a betong. You, and
2: can, you can have a betong. You beton. can do your
1: talk and say, hey, guys, this is a betong, and people can get excited about it. And they can and, say, yeah. yeah. And these are extinct in South Australia, and here's why you can talk about the population, and then you can bring the betong back out again. But the good news is you guys all know what's going on now. Yeah, have a photo with a betong. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, well, I think that, <laughs> that's a really good idea. It's what we haven't been doing enough of, yeah. Maybe the, the goanna. Take a goanna, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, they're, they're endangered here in Adelaide, aren't they?
2: Goannas, mm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. It does help, yeah, it does help. <laughs> I think so. Mm.
0: Yeah. No, it's, it's uh, it is. I'm, I'm acutely aware of it. Walking around this fair is that you know you've got a, a booth there with these these are beautiful animals that people can um, can get right up and uh, up close to and, and see. These might be for many people here. They might be animals they've only ever seen on a TV screen or um, or in a book. We don't have that in our, in our booth, you know. Come up and we'll tell you that things are really bleak and not getting any better. And um, so, yeah, we've, we've come back to that, that beautiful book. You know, there are examples out there, a few examples of, of really positive narratives that um, we need to look more closely at uh, that can sow that seed of hope without it being false hope. So... Okay. Yeah, I can understand. Yep. I've been
1: spending a lot of time trying to deliver the conservation message in a, in a great way. It's not easy. It's not easy to do. And it's great that there's events like this where we can network and, and meet each other and talk. And mm. Dr. James Ward, I know you've got to go. Thank you so much for coming on the
0: podcast. Thank you. Thank you
1: for having me. It's yeah. been fantastic. And I hope to see you at lots more of this event. I should say it's the first time I've seen anyone speak on this subject at any of these expos. Yeah. Um, ever so let's, let's hope this continues and mate if we can, we can come up there with you with a fluffy we're more than happy to do it.
0: We should work that out. I mean in all seriousness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, would, or a yeah, goanna yeah. Yeah. or a
1: goanna. Yeah. Or anything yeah. Yeah. mate Fantastic. thanks so much awesome. and guys thank you for listening
0: Thanks